Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Is what you eat causing you to feel bad? Our favorite foods might be making us sick. Sally Bellas is in the studio. She's on for the third time, I think, already, Sally. Expert nutritionist, certified diabetes educator. We're going to explore if the food you love to eat might be causing a lot more trouble than you think on the inside. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu. We're toll free from the neighbor islands at 877-941-3689. First in medical news, Straub Foundation summer students are finishing up their project, and we have Dr. James Kakuda, Chief of Staff at Polymomi Medical Center, and Kelly Woe from the Straub Foundation Student Group, and they're going to be telling us about the project that Kelly's been working on. Kelly is going to be stu- is studying chemistry going into your junior year at Wellesley. Is that right? I'm going to be a senior. Oh, senior year. <laughs> All right. And you're studying chemistry. You might be headed to medical school, but you're doing something really great this summer. You're spending time helping us to understand some of the issues regarding breast cancer in people who have been diagnosed right here in the islands. What is your project looking at? My project is looking at the impact of ethnicity on clinical and genomic factors of breast cancer. Okay, so you're actually taking people who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. Yes. And you're looking at what sort of clinical factors? Clinical factors are things like age, how old the patient is, how big the tumor is, how bad the tumor is. And we're taking all of that and getting a score. So how us. bad it is, like if it's if it's really aggressive, if it right. looks really unusual versus if it looks almost normal but just barely cancerous. Right. So we're taking all of that information and we calculate a score, which will tell us how likely it is that the breast cancer will return. And I guess I would expect that if you have some really aggressive cancer or if you're um, at an age when you're really young, when it when you develop this, or if it's very large in size, those three things might make it more likely to come back? Yes. And you're looking at this score as a chance that it's going to return? Yes. Now, Dr. Kakuda, if it looks like it's going to return, is that going to change some of the management clinically for how you treat individuals with breast cancer? Sure. We see... Um patients with breast cancer all the time that we think that it's almost a guarantee that they're going to have a recurrence. They have large tumors, women at a young age at the time of diagnosis. And the reason why we did this study is that oftentimes we're, or sometimes we're surprised women with large tumors, maybe three inches across, for example, or have many lymph nodes under the arm with cancer. And we find that they never occur. And Lucky for them. Lucky for them. And if we were to give them aggressive treatment, we may be over-treating them with chemotherapy, for example. So the reason for this study is, is there a different way? Is there a better way to estimate a woman's risk for the cancer coming back and maybe not over-treating them with chemotherapy? And on the flip side, not under-treating them without giving them chemotherapy. So finding the exact best treatment for them that we can say, hey, we have all this research behind the decision we're recommending for you, and here's why. Now, Kelly, you mentioned that that's one area that you're looking at, their clinical score based on how old they are, how big it is, and how bad it is. And you're comparing this with another score. What's that? Right. So there's also, uh, recently there's been genetic tests. So you can take a sample of the tissue taken out during uh, the surgery. So a sample of the tumor. Right. And you send that away, and then the company will give you back a different score. And this is looking at the gene expression. 
Just on the tumor? Yes. So this score is just looking, not taking into an account age or size or, or other sorts of factors. It looks at cancer genes right. and says in the cancer, there are certain genes, and if they're expressed, that could change the, the score. chance of somebody getting it again. Mm-hmm. And again, this is the genetic score, and that will tell you how likely it is. So do these two scores match? Do they correlate? What is it that you're finding so far? Um, From the sample, we have about 190 patients, and we've seen that there's not really a correlation between the two, at least in this sample. So um, maybe for now, oncologists will still have to decide with their patients just which tests they want to use and which tests they're going to look at in order to decide how to treat it. So in clinical practice, Dr. Kukuda, so you've got you've got people with maybe one score that says, oh, they have a very low chance it's going to come back, another score that says, hey, it might be high. What do you do with that information? So Kelly's working on a project found maybe there's going to be dramatically different results. What does that translate into when you're talking with somebody who's been diagnosed with breast cancer? That's a very interesting question. Uh, right now, there is an ongoing clinical trial called the Taylor X trial that is designed to address this exact question. Is the gene test, does that trump decades of experience with our clinical factors, patient age, size, how aggressive it looks like under the microscope? So integrating this new technology into the traditional decision-making process really hasn't been worked out yet. Um, Right now, most of my oncology colleagues are using this to kind of break the tie. We are, the, the oncologist has strong suspicions based on clinical factors that it's going to recur. Maybe patients are highly reluctant to consider chemotherapy, for example. And sometimes we've been using this test to really say, well, based on these, this new test, we are more worried about it coming back. And oftentimes we'll break the tie. Let's go ahead and give treatment if the score is high. Let's watch you and not give you chemotherapy and try endocrine therapy, for example, a pill, for example, um, as an alternative. So we're really helping women to make a decision between, okay, remove the tumor, which would be step one. That's how you do some of these tests. And then what are some of those other alternatives? So some of these include intravenous chemotherapy. People most often often associate that with hair loss and feeling sick and those sorts of symptoms versus you mentioned hormonal therapy, things like tamoxifen and some of the other riloxifene, some of the other medications out there that are used to try and reduce the risk of the cancer coming back. Uh, correct. Some of the medication, tamoxifen, as you mentioned, blocks the effects of estrogen on the body. And other ones called and, um, aromatase inhibitors reduce a woman's ability to make estrogen. So those two are non-intravenous or oral or pill form um, treatment that has been shown to be effective. So either way, these scores are helping us to determine what are the ways that we can look at the whole entire picture, at the person who's diagnosed, at the genetics of the tumor that they have, and really give them the best recommendation we can for how to proceed with treatment. Correct. Fantastic. Well, Kelly, thank you so much for working on this this summer. Best of luck studying chemistry at Wellesley, senior year. It's, it's not an easy topic to study. Uh, chemistry wasn't always the easiest class for me. But I want to thank both of you, Dr. Kakuda, for being involved in this study. Kelly, for you participating, this is your almost your last free summer. I mean, after senior year, I don't know if people get summer vacation that much anymore. So thank you for spending your time here in the islands working on this research project. Thanks to both of you. Well, thank you very much. 
All right. Our favorite foods, are they making you feel bad? Is the joy of eating them the only good part of what it does in the body? Well, our expert Sally Bellas is in the studio, and she's going to tell us about the best foods that help us feel good even after we eat them. We'd like to hear from you about your favorite food choice or something you think is surprisingly delicious. You can join us at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Sally, welcome back to The Body Show. Thank you. Is this your third, fourth time? I think it might even be my fourth. Wow, okay, because you've always been helping us out with telling us excellent facts about nutrition. So, Sally, what's the deal? Why can't I eat whatever I want all the time? What's wrong with that? Well, because we can get sick from eating too many of uh, foods that might irritate us or bother us. or too Too much of something is never a good thing. All right, that whole moderation thing. Right. Okay, well, now some people need to follow a special diet. Let's talk about some of those folks, you know, because there are some simple examples that will will help people to realize sometimes what they eat can have an effect. So let's talk about gout. You know, gout's one of those conditions where you get this buildup of this, this amino acid called uric acid in the bloodstream. And if you have this genetic predisposition, it can deposit in the joints. So if you're somebody who has gout. What are some of the foods that you need to be careful with? For gout, a lot of the problematic foods would be foods that are high in purines. So purines can increase uric acid levels in the bloodstream. And so avoiding these foods are, you know, can be important for some, some people, especially if they have what we call trigger foods. Um, those, um, especially alcohol, um, so beer, wine, um, a lot of processed meats, Hot dogs, bacon, sausage. You've just um, bummed out a lot of people out there who are like, I get gout. What do you mean? I can't have beer and hot dogs and and shrimp cocktail and all those sorts of things. Well, yeah. Here in Hawaii, the seafood, the shellfish, shellfish is a big one. So, yeah. So those are foods that if you eat too much of them could actually build – the uric acid could build up in your bloodstream, cause gout. Now, are there any foods that might make people feel better? if they have gout? Are there any uric acid-lowering foods? Well, you know, there's been some research on cherries and um, some other foods, but honestly, um, the the best thing someone can do for gout management or to minimize uh, the severity and the recurrence is to really manage their weight. So there's a lot of research and um, just consistent evidence that um, the weight issue is a big thing with gout. so, so that that can be something that needs to be looked at, um, and a lot of people have a hard time identifying the foods that trigger their gout. A lot, a lot of times, there's inconsistencies. Um, they may not it may not show up when they eat the food right away. So they're like, oh, I don't think that causes my gout. Um, like they, I had that last week, and I didn't have trouble. How come this week it's giving me trouble? Kind of phenomena. Exactly. Exactly. Now, in somebody who has gout. If they, if they eat too much of certain foods, they get a really obvious response. If you're going to get gout, it hurts. In fact, gout is one of those things like kidney stones that can make a grown man cry. It hurts that bad. People describe it feeling like there's thousands of little needles that are pointing through your joint. And in fact, if you look at little crystals under a microscope, uric acid crystals, which you can get if you take a little fluid out of that joint, they do have pointy edges. So you get sort of an obvious response when you eat a food, then you have this condition gout, and it tells you right away, hey, if this is a problem, it's going to hurt, you know that. So it's a really one-to-one correlation. 
Right. It is. Um, and, and foods that tend to be lower in purine are things that are actually good for us. So fresh meats, um, a lot of you know non-processed foods, beans, lentils, uh, things like oats, um, vegetables, uh, sweet potatoes. So you know those are things that are good for us. Um, you know some of the big ones are uh, other than the alcohol, uh, the sardines, anchovies, organ meats, so liver. A lot of those can be problematic for some some people. So with gout, it's kind of obvious. You mm-hmm. you eat something, it gives you a problem, it hurts really bad. Mm-hmm. If every time you eat something, it hurts really bad, you learn pretty quickly, don't eat that. Maybe you learn. Hopefully you learn. Right. But let's talk about something a little more subtle. You know, I had someone ask me today, how do I know if I'm lactose intolerant? I, I don't always have the symptoms. Sometimes after I eat things with milk, I feel kind of bloated. I kind of feel like, you know, I just, I don't feel good. That's something that might not be as direct one-to-one. It doesn't necessarily cause pain. How would you know if you were lactose intolerant? Well, you know, a lot of times we just go by symptoms and uh, just diet recalls in terms of what patients tell us in, in the clinical setting. So if they're having a lot of bloating or diarrhea or problems, and um, they can associate back and relate it back to consuming milk, then that could be an issue. And it's really more of an intolerance. So, you know, hence lactose intolerance. And that just basically means they may not uh, have the enzyme lactase or enough of it to break down or the enzyme to break down the lactase or the, the milk sugar. So could somebody say, hey, I can eat ice cream, but I can't drink milk? Possible if we're dealing with a lactose intolerance or probably not? Um, possible. Possible. A lot of... Um, individuals that are lactose intolerant, or let's say they, they have a lot of problems with cow's milk, uh, sometimes can, can tolerate things like ice cream and yogurt. Um, so it's the amount the amount of the milk sugar. So. so it's the amount, and it's also what it's in. Exactly. So if it's in yogurt, it mm-hmm. could be different than if mm-hmm. it's in regular milk, which could right. be different than if it's in ice cream. Right. Now, is, is the easiest thing to do if you have something like that um, – just take lactate, I mean, just take the enzyme and then just go drink your milk if you need it or just avoid it. I mean, are there easy answers? If you think you're lactose intolerant and you go, yeah, I think as I've gotten older, I seem to have developed this problem. Can you just test it? Just take some lactate, see what happens? You could. The best thing is to basically just avoid those uh, foods that cause problems and discomfort. And this offending food would be milk. So um, unless for any reason they just love their milk and have to have it, um, just avoiding it would be the best thing to avoid symptoms or minimize the symptoms. Now, if you were in a situation where you were wondering about about that, is there any harm in in just doing something like trying it, seeing if it makes you feel better or worse, it, trying the lactate, it's not going to harm you. It just may not work. Not at all, because a lot of times we are our own best, uh, uh, exper- you know, we experiment on ourselves and we know our bodies best. We live with our own bodies. So, so we, you would we, become our, we become our own best experts, really. Now, how important is a dietary recall? I mean, should people really be writing down what they ate for breakfast, lunch, or dinner if they're trying to track something? I mean, if you ask me what I ate last Tuesday night for dinner, I don't remember. I mean, that was last week. So how important is it to kind of keep track of what you're eating? It's very important, especially if someone is really um, suffering from something like 
gout, which, as you said, is can be very debilitating, or they have severe symptoms because of lactose intolerance. It's very important for um, us as dietitian nutritionists working with patients to really see what they're eating and kind of looking at that food journal to tie things together as best we can. Because you're right, the recall is very poor. I, I have I have a lot of patients that can't remember what they even had just before they came to the appointment sometimes. Okay, now I mean, then seriously. they have a problem, really. <laughs> so. Their problem might not be the nutrition, but <laughs> exactly. okay, I mean, true. And if you try and go back a week or two, that's kind of pretty far. Yeah, that's... Unless you had some monumentally delicious, amazing meal, most people might not remember, which kind of gets to the other point, which is if you think you can't live without it, next week you won't remember what it was. So you could live without it. Right. Okay. So now when we talk about uh, some of these sorts of things, what about gluten? Everybody's always talking about, I can't tolerate gluten. I'm gluten sensitive. I need to go gluten free. Um, What is gluten? And why is everyone seemingly so afraid of it? Gluten is, you know, the protein found in a lot of grain products, especially wheat, and it's it's part of the wheat product. And the reason why people hear so much about it is because it's in just about everything. So it's really hard to avoid gluten. Um, is it possible to eat gluten-free? Absolutely. There's so many wonderful products that are available now. So for individuals that uh, are wanting to eat a gluten-free diet or try a modified gluten-free diet, or for those that absolutely should be on a gluten-free diet, such as those with celiac, diagnosed celiac disease, um, there are products available. Do they taste good? Have you tried them? Are they kind of like cardboard? No. Am I just eating a box? I actually have tried a couple, and I've tried some different uh, gluten-free breads and things, and they actually taste really good. So what's in there instead of the gluten? Do they just put, like, fake gluten in there? Right. So the the offending grains tend to be wheat, rye, and barley. Um, oats used to be on that list, but what they're finding now is oats are not, not that big a deal, but that's something that someone with celiac disease would really watch. But it's mainly the wheat, the rye, and the barley. So what they're using is rice or corn or um, tapioca starch and other other types of of starches. So tapioca, not necessarily pudding, but just right. tapioca as a starch. Right. I would love to say everyone should eat tapioca pudding instead of eating bread, but that's not generally good nutrition, which is why you're here to tell us what to do. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, our expert guest, Sally Bellas, is going to tell us some more about whether or not the foods that you love could be causing you to feel sick. And how would you know if some of those foods could be causing a problem? Sometimes you might be eating them long enough, you kind of forget what normal feels like. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. If you've got a favorite gluten-free product that you just love, We'd like to hear about it and how it doesn't taste like cardboard. I'm not convinced, but I can be. You can join us and we'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. Summer learning programs offer an opportunity for students to shore up their skills in key areas, but some of the courses of study might surprise you. What's the value, for example, of training in comedic improvisation? Maybe there's quite a bit. One could argue that much of life is improvisation. And we'll talk with a student tomorrow morning at 8 on The Conversation. One of the best places in the world for a walk in the country is Britain. Somebody once described England as as being like a handmade quilt. And it isn't dramatic. It is man-made. 
but is like being in one enormous garden. Explore the many options you have for strolling or hiking across the pastoral landscapes of England and Scotland. Dust off your hiking boots for the next travel with Rick Steves. Tuesday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with my nutrition expert and friend, Sally Bellas. She is a nutrition counselor. She is a certified diabetes educator, and she's got decades of experience helping people discover what foods will make them feel good, not just when they eat it, but afterwards as well. Before the break, we were talking a little bit about gluten. Now, Sally, I've got to say, can you be sensitive with to gluten without being intolerant to it. People talk about celiac disease and gluten sensitivity. Can you just sort of have it not make you feel good, but not have a diagnosis associated with that? Yes, yes. And there are, there are, I have a lot of patients that do talk about that, you know. And um, But it's so important if someone has uh, symptoms that they do get checked by the doctor because it's um, with celiac disease, you don't really want to mess around with gluten. That can really um, affect the intestinal villi or the the lining and and cause some permanent damage so and that's where you absorb all your nutrients that's right that's so right, what so. sort of symptoms might somebody have if they have celiac disease is it just you eat something you feel really bad abdominal pain and cramping and then exactly okay mm-hmm. so then you go to your doctor get it checked out and then you find out there's blood tests for this there's biopsies that can be done all different ways right. so if you've got the diagnosis of celiac you're not messing with gluten no if you just don't like gluten because it makes you gassy you can avoid it. It's not going to harm you if you eat it, but you might not feel good. Right. And so it's about feeling good. And so, again, it's individualized. And I work with my individual patients and clients in terms of uh, what are the offenders and uh, working with, you know, a lot of times it's about the amount and the frequency. So sometimes we just look at, okay, well, how much of it are you eating? And then the symptoms can be managed that way as well if it's just basically gluten intolerance or sensitivity for for some individuals. Now, there's, you know, when we talk about having things that you feel you want to feel good when you eat them, you don't want to feel bad later. Let's talk about something that does feel bad. Let's talk about reflux because sometimes after you have that wonderful lunchtime pepperoni pizza and maybe you have some coffee with it or some caffeine or a soda and then, you know, you might burp a little bit and it feels like lunch did come back. Um, that's never pleasant either. So let's talk about what sorts of things could make you feel bad because your stomach literally gets too much acid in there. What sort of foods might make somebody feel bad if, if they've got a reflux issue? Well, obviously, it's foods that are acidic. So tomato sauce, uh, so things like pizza or uh, uh, very spicy foods uh, or things that uh, cause more acid production in the in the stomach. So coffee. Like orange Some juice. Orange juice. Orange juice is acidic. Coffee. It's citrus. Exactly. So if you put acid into your stomach that already has acid, and let's talk about that whole moderation thing. You kind of go overboard. Absolutely. So it's not so much that it could be the pizza. It might be the four or five slices of pizza. Have you been in my house? Have you been watching me? Okay, so, I mean, it might just be that you're having too much of that particular food, and therefore that's why the acid increases. And then sometimes it does come back in ways you wish it did not. Right, um, and drinking, you know, a lot of times, first thing people get up, they just want their coffee. So, you know, drinking coffee on an empty, empty stomach, 
sometimes putting acid into acid exactly and coffee you know coffee is an acidic beverage so it can trigger the other thing is the um the time it takes for food to leave the stomach so fats take a long time to digest and leave the stomach so if we eat a very high fat meal or a very greasy fatty meal and a lot of food that could cause reflux because it's just sitting in the stomach longer and there's a slower emptying time. And so if that fatty food is a cheesy pizza with that spicy, acidic tomato sauce. Yeah, all of a sudden I'm not hungry at all the way you put it. That fatty food is a cheesy pizza with acidic tomato sauce. Yeah, I don't think I want pizza right now. Thanks for curing me of my dinner cravings, Ellie. But okay, so it depends quantity, but also when you put it in your stomach, what else might be in there? And if you have extra extra acid in your stomach, don't go adding even more based on the food you eat. You'll feel bad later. Right. And and again, you know, fried greasy foods, they're just going to sit there for a long time and and cause reflux as well. The other thing, you know, similar to gout, uh, weight. It always goes back to weight. That can be an issue. So... There are some studies that show if you are overweight, then you put extra pressure on your stomach. That increases your likelihood to get reflux. And then you add all these acidy foods, and it's just a recipe for, you know, the belch that comes back with the lunch that you didn't anticipate. And there's a lot of commonalities. I mean, again, we talked about gout, and we're talking about, you know, reflux or uh, GERD. But alcohol, it can um, dull the – or. Kind of that relax that lower of that, uh, that sphincter, right, we that call lower it esophageal, esophageal sphincter. sphincter. Okay. So that's the other thing that can lead to, you know, dinner coming back up. And peppermint. That's another thing I didn't realize. Yes, peppermint. So you know, it's the you, joy of the after dinner mint when you've had too much dinner. It exactly. feels so good, but and, then and that's it isn't. the thing. A lot of people will eat and they're like, "Okay, I want my after dinner mint." So if they had something, you know, very greasy or very fatty, and they're having that dinner mint, boy. Talk about a double whammy. So. All right. I'm not going to double whammy myself. We've so, got a couple of callers mm-hmm. on the line. We've got Judith from Honolulu. Judith, do you like your after-dinner mints, too? <laughs> I do like my after-dinner mints. No, me too, but I'm <laughs> going to have to stop. All right. What can we do for you today? Uh, my daughter is vegan. This Really, you haven't touched on this subject yet, I think, but my daughter is vegan, but she has calcium-based kidney stones, really bad calcium-based kidney stones. I'm, she doesn't, of course, eat meat or um, milk products, and I'm wondering what other kinds of foods can generate that. You mean generate the stones? Yes. Well, is she taking any, I mean, this might be obvious, but and hopefully she's not, but is she taking calcium supplements? No. Okay. So she's got these calcium stones, and she's a vegan, so what could possibly be in her diet that could be making them worse? Right. Sally, mm-hmm. what do you think? We've got an expert here for you, Judith. She's got a whole file that says kidney stones. I know she can help us. Right. So um, that's the thing with being vegan, probably lots of fruits and vegetables in the diet. And the thing is um, plant foods are, plant foods um, contain high levels of oxalates, and these can um, turn into salts or calcium salts. So one of the things that we advise is choosing low-oxalate foods, but also even just salts, um, that might be able to help. And, and of course, hydration is so important. So a lot of foods that are very high in oxalates um, would be things like fruits and vegetable juices, rice milk. So a lot of my um, vegans um, 
if they're not drinking soy or almond milk, they may drinking, be drinking rice milk. Um, berries are so popular, so nutritious. We just love them, but um, they're, they're moderate. So that might be something to watch out for, orange peel, plums, um, and beans. So with being vegan, um, it's so important to get protein from plant-based sources. So beans are a big one in the diet, but they're also, you know, if you're eating a lot of beans. So, again, it's about the frequency and the quantity. Um, so basically, Sally, all the foods that a vegan might eat, if they're not in the right quantity or the right combination, could actually promote these calcium-based. And sometimes, Judith, they call them calcium oxalate because that's one of the common ways that those stones uh, combine. And it could cause more stones. Mm. So this is a real serious issue. I mean, uh, Judith, has your daughter ever thought of going to a nutritionist? Uh, she is seeing one now. So. Oh, that's good because these they're really smart people. Sally's one of them. And she's got a whole list of all, here's the good stuff that you might want to have more of. Here's the stuff you might want to have less of. There's nothing, Sally, I guess there's nothing you can't eat. It's just the wrong quantity. Would that be a fair statement? A lot of times for a lot of conditions, and I don't want to say, you know, across the board and make a blanket statement, but a lot of conditions can be managed by looking at diet recall and records and really working one-on-one with that patient to individualize and say, okay, what's your tolerance level of things? And then there are conditions that, okay, you really need to avoid these foods. But uh, So, like, let's say Judith wants to make her daughter a fabulous dinner. What is she cooking for her? She's a vegan. What's she going to make? Right, so you you want to watch out for those um, those high oxalate foods and choose things like so good fruits would be like apples, apricots, bananas, avocados. So a nice like salad with some avocado or um, even or an, like apple chunks. Yes, and and that sounds delicious. I'll I'll eat that. Sally, you're right. gonna make me a a salad with apple chunks and apricots. You said. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay. So lettuce, mushrooms, you know, a stir fry with a lot low oxalate vegetables. Um, cranberries, grapes, things like that. Straw. So strawberries are actually lower in oxalates than your blueberries and your blackberries. So that's a great option. Okay, that's good advice. Thank you very much. Mm. That sounds fabulous. Thanks for calling, Judith. Now I'm hungry for strawberries and apples and, and whatever salad I'm going to make Sally make for me. All right, so we have got another caller on the line. We have got Georgia from Maili. Georgia, welcome to The Body Show. Hello, I'm calling because I... I used to do nutrition with Sally, and I want to ask her about coconut oil. Because somebody said that that's the latest fad, and we should all give up all our other oils, canola and olive, and go coconut now. Sounds so good. Want, Sounds delicious. Yeah. Back on that one. Okay. Well, I love the fact you called it a fad because you know what's really funny, Georgia. Is like usually things happen in threes. You are the third person today to ask me about coconut oil. I have had two other people in my office today ask me the same exact thing. So, Sally, you're on coconut oil. It just seems so yummy. But why should we not have that all the time? Well, there's there's good research um, for olive oil and for canola oil. Um, There's not a lot of research on coconut oil, but there is some. And so coconut oil, especially um, the extra virgin coconut oil, has been shown to actually lower the LDL levels. So your bad cholesterol might go a little lower with coconut oil. But then you've got that olive oil, you know, and that increases your good guys, your HDLs, and reduces your LDLs. So it's got some competition. Right. But coconut probably tastes better. 
Okay, so so your verdict on coconut oil is well. Let me let me just rephrase. And actually, the research has shown that coconut oil can actually help increase the the HDL, the good cholesterol. Okay, so it can but, increase the good guys, right? But it it does it increases the LDL also. Mm. So the HDL, the good cholesterol, is protective, but you don't want to be increasing your LDL. So there was a study done on. Um, about 1,500 Philippine women, and they were using, and a lot of our coconut oil production comes from the Philippines. So they were given the extra virgin coconut oil, and they found that it actually did increase their good HDL cholesterol levels, but their LDL levels, the bad cholesterol, also went up versus something like olive oil, which is a monounsaturated fat. It can help increase the good cholesterol, but it can help lower the LDL or bad cholesterol. So that's that's where it comes out on top. But coconut oil can fit into, you know, the diet for, for individuals that they just feel the taste of olive oil just doesn't appeal to them. All right, Georgia, we got your verdict. All right. Thanks thank for you. calling, Georgia. Take Thanks care. for joining us today on The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathy Kozak here in the studio with expert nutritionist Sally Bellas, and we are talking about what is really good to eat and why it might make you feel even better later, and definitely, hopefully not guilty that you waited. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. Sally, we've got another caller. We have Alan from Kaimu Key. Alan, welcome to The Body Show. Hi. Hi, Alan. Uh, what can we do for you? Uh, I had a question. Uh, you just had someone speaking about the gluten, and I understand, you know, when someone's allergic or whatever, that uh, they need to stay away from it. But I actually add gluten. I bake a lot of uh, breads and things, whole grains, and I add the gluten for additional protein. And I have vegan friends who also use gluten as a substitute for meat. And is it is gluten a good source of protein or not? It's a great question. You're a pro-gluten man. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, well, gluten is the protein in the grain. And so um, I'm glad you mentioned that as a baker because you can't get that beautiful, nice, fluffy, structured bread without the gluten. So you have exactly. to develop the gluten, right, to get the structure so you get that nice loaf of, loaf of bread. And you cannot do that without the gluten, and it needs to be developed. So, you know, as a baker, you're, you're, you understand that. Um, in terms of protein, uh, grains don't tend to be the best sources of protein, although they provide protein. The best protein we can get uh, does come from uh, eggs and lean meats, uh, nuts and beans. But and and quinoa is a grain that is high in protein. Um, but we can get protein from grains like wheat, rice, and corn. But it is it is the protein, um, and then allows the the it's, it is the protein structure. I guess what I'm trying to say is I hear it's almost like it's a negative thing, and unless you're actually allergic to it, there's nothing wrong with it, is there? Absolutely. So there's there's a lot of um, gluten-free products available. There are a lot of people trying these gluten-free diets. There's a lot of books out there. So, you know, it's kind of something people are curious about and they want to try and they want to see if it helps them feel better. And so, you know, if it does help someone to feel better, then more power to them. Um, it doesn't harm them. But in terms of uh, you know, all of us having to go gluten-free, it's, it's absolutely, you know, unnecessary. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, if people enjoy their wheat bread and, you know... Then go gluten. Then It's go not going to harm you. Yeah, this, and this, so, no. So this 
<laughs> anti-gluten thing has gotten so far that, you know, I, I hear products like vegetables and fruits, oh, gluten-free, but hey... As far as I know, they are gluten-free. Well, well, that's marketing there, my friend. That's right. It's like it's like peanut butter when they put no cholesterol. Well, peanut butter never had cholesterol. The thing with, um, with gluten is it does absolutely need to be avoided in individuals with diagnosed celiac disease because it's detrimental to them. However, yeah. or if someone has gluten sensitivities, we work with them on an individual basis to um, modify their diet so that they're less symptomatic. Um, but in terms of, you know, gluten-free for everyone, it, it's, it's not necessary, and it um, actually eliminates some, some foods, favorite foods that people do like that they can probably continue to still enjoy. Um, and like I said, gluten's in a lot of foods. So, you know, if you like your poke um, or your soy sauce, well, there's, there's gluten in that. So. so you don't have to avoid it. Now, gluten's in a veggie burger too, right? Right. Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's in a lot of, most of it. Right. So breaded foods are things like that. Um, or um, things like hot dogs or things that contain. So you really have to know how to read labels. And as a registered dietitian nutritionist, I work very closely with my patients with celiac disease or with very severe gluten intolerance to really help them learn to read those food labels and look at the ingredient list because that's, that's so important. And going gluten-free, you really want to have a second set of everything at home because you don't want to mix. So with someone that has celiac disease, they really need to have their own cutting bar, their own toaster, everything. So, But it's safe wow. to go gluten, and if Alan wants to go gluten and bake, more power to him. <laughs> exactly. All right. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Thanks for the call. All right, Alan, thank you for joining us here in Kaimuki. I want to have some gluten bread now. It sounds uh, now, This is bad to have a show about food during dinner time, Sally. I don't know what we were thinking, but this is this is good information. All right. So, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, joined in the studio by my friend, registered dietitian and nutritionist Sally Bellas. And if you've got a food you want to know about, if you wonder, could it be making you sick or maybe is it actually good for you and you don't even realize it because everyone else said not so much, you can share your story. Join us today at 941-3689, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. If you've got a favorite food you want to know, good, not so good, how much of it is okay, you can join us. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. When you become a lifetime member, you're investing yourself in what you believe in. You do get a good feeling about what you're doing. And when you listen to these programs, I think it gives them a little more oomph. You know, you feel like you're helping to back it up, and this is what you enjoy, and you do what you can, and you you do feel good about it and enjoy it more, I think. My name is Meg Bergman, and I am proud to be a lifetime member of Hawaii Public Radio. Put four children's writers together as the author's reader's theater and create magic. I think that reading out loud to kids is the most powerful experience in literature that you can give to a child. Steve Kraske interviews Avi along with Richard Peck, Sarah Weeks, and Brian Selznick about the author's reader's theater on New Letters on the Air. Tuesday evening at 6.30. 
Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Sally Bellas, registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and all knowing about what foods we can eat that will make us feel good instead of regretting it a few hours later. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We've got a caller on the line. We have Mele Ana from Kailua. Mele Ana, welcome to The Body Show. Hey, good afternoon, ladies. Good I afternoon. I wanted to, to ask, please, if you know, I've heard a lot about um, food combining, so maybe you could speak a little bit to that because people say, well, you're not supposed to you know, put vegetables with fruits or something. I mean, I've heard the range of things. So actually, I'm really interested, particularly in salads, like what you can put in or can't. I mean, you go out to dinner and people mix things all the time. So I'm, I'm a little confused. Maybe you could sort of clarify that for me. It's a good question, Meliana. You know, I've always heard don't have ice cream after you eat Chinese food or something. And I'm like, but I want it. Or don't mix fish with milk. And I'm like, but why not? So, yeah, Sally, so- what's what's with the food combining? Should we be worried? Is it just kind of silly? Or I love this question. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence to this um, at all because... Our bodies are made to do what they need to do. So our pancreas, our gallbladder, our liver, they they do what they need to do to digest every component. And, you know, the bottom line is all the foods we ate, eat break down ultimately into glucose. And so fats and proteins, you know, break down into their amino acids, their individual fatty acids. But um, our bodies know what to do with that. You know, we secrete enzymes and gut hormones and all kinds of stuff that regulate our appetite and help with our food. Um, so there, there's really no scientific evidence to support uh, the idea of uh, combining certain foods or not having certain foods um, together. Your, your bo- our human bodies are perfectly equipped to, to handle what we, what we eat, um, especially if it's, you know, fresh, whole foods. Okay, well, that's good to so know. So you, you can enjoy anything in your okay. salad. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good to know. I appreciate that because People are so definitive about things, and I think, wow, okay, well, what, what, is, what is real about that? So, okay, thank so you. So it all goes to the same place, Meliana, and, and if it's all in your stomach, your stomach will know what to do. Yeah, and I just want to add that, um, you know, things aren't necessarily digested in the order you, you ate them in. Oh, that's so, interesting. Or they don't leave the stomach <laughs> in the... So people have this idea about, oh, I've got to combine foods, and the different foods leave my stomach in the order I ate them in. Not true. <laughs> Okay, well, wow. Okay. Yeah. I never even thought of that. Clarification. Okay. All right. Well, thank you, Meliana. I'm going to go have ice cream after I eat Chinese food sometime because I'm allowed. Sally said so. All right. We've got another caller on the line. We've got Ray from Kapolei. Ray, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you today? Uh, my wife uh, suffers from eczema. I, I'd call it moderate to severe depending upon the time of day and time of the month and everything uh, are there any foods that should be avoided? That's a great question. You know, because eczema is one of those skin conditions, and you kind of wonder, is something you ate causing it? I know stress can make it worse, so I'm sure, Ray, that you're not causing your wife any stress no at more all. More than any other husband. <laughs> so stress is one of those things that can do it. Sally, any foods that can bring on eczema? None that I can think of off I the just, top there of my is, head. There is really nothing on that. There's just not a lot on that. It is just something that... Um, it you know can be related related to other conditions and a lot of things are triggered by stress. So it's back to 
So is GERD. If you're stressed, it makes it worse. Reflux um, could happen. Right, sure. all that. So um, a lot of things can be triggered by stress, migraines, eczema. Um, but there's there's not much in the food department um, in terms of, of minimizing that. All right, Ray, you can't blame the food. Already. All right. Well, thanks for asking. Great question. Hello. Okay. We've got Cassandra from Chinatown. Cassandra, welcome to The Body Show. Thank you. Thanks for calling. What can we do for you today? I was just reading an article about someone who had the problem with gluten, and they went to Europe, all over Europe, and they ate the bread and and, uh, all those wheat and products uh, and enjoyed them thoroughly with no problems. Well, I want to go to Europe, but I don't have any reason to go. I'm, I can eat gluten. I hear the bread is good there. <laughs> so well, is, do they do something different, Sally? Do they make like super bread? No, it's... it's, it's the it's, processing, isn't it, of all the, of the wheats and everything kind of get together here. Well, it's, I kind of wonder, because, you know, sometimes in Europe, depending on where you go, they like to eat, and, and I admire this, fresh fruits and vegetables. So you go to the corner store, you buy some fresh tomatoes, you decide to make tomatoes, tomato sauce, and you actually use, like, real ingredients, and you just bought them that day, and maybe they were delivered that morning. As opposed to sometimes, and I am a guilty queen, trust me, you go to Costco, you buy, like, a month's supply of something that you try and eat before it goes bad, and, and it's not necessarily fresh. Fresh. So sometimes I wonder, Sally, is is the freshness of what we're eating, could that make somebody feel different? Maybe they think it's the gluten, but it really has to do with some other element of the food that they ate as opposed to... I don't know. I don't you know? really think so. I think it's being in Europe and having a wonderful time and eating really delicious bread because a lot well, of it is I a mindset. It's, okay. it's Again, it's stress. Whenever we're stressed or... Um, you know, a lot of times we create a lot of our own problems in terms of that way. And our GI tract, you know, is very sensitive to stress. So, so bread is but, bread no matter where you get it. And go to Europe because you'll be more relaxed and you'll you'll have a better piece well, of bread. Well, I do want to say that we want to make sure that we're, you know, purchasing fresh bread and, you know, choosing whole grains or sprouted wheats, things like that. But, you know, chances are in Europe they're eating the French bread or Italian breads or white breads or croissants and pastries and things like that with no problem so all right cassandra i want to go to europe now but i don't have a good medical reason (laughs) but thank you for calling that's a wonderful question that really is uh is illustrating that you know bread is bread and and stress will do a lot to make what you eat feel differently as you digest it and that i would absolutely agree with we've got another caller we've got keone from ia i love to hear about these calls these really interesting questions keone what can we do for you hi thank you for an interesting show listen i've been uh, diagnosed with proctitis and uh, so i try to minimize uh, consumption of milk or beans and i've been taking acetal for a long time now without you know very much effect is there anything else that uh, you would recommend that might be more effective like a like a food no um, uh, well food but also a med well that's a tough one because you know when you're dealing with that kind of problem you're right. You do have to be careful when you have proctitis. Anything that you eat kind of does get eliminated and it kind of goes through that area. And you want to make sure that you're not eating something that could make you have really hard stool, be constipated, super soft stool, be irritated. So, you know, medication wise, well, Sally, I'll take care of, you know, the meds you wouldn't necessarily know. But for somebody who has some changes in their bowel habits, who have difficulties because they have an irritation towards the external area where they're eliminating towards the rectum, Mm -hmm. are there 
good foods that will keep their bowels regular and not too hard, not too soft? Are there good healthy dietary choices they can add? Right. Soluble fiber may be beneficial. Well, you need the insoluble fiber that comes from things like wheat bran and a lot of the vegetable skins and things like that because you need to form the stool and then you need it to move through the intestine but or the colon. But you also would... Uh, might make want to focus on soluble fiber from things like oats or oat bran or beans, uh, peas, legumes, things like that, apples, to help to um, keep the stool softer. And also, because soluble fiber is soluble in water. So that can so help. So you want soluble and insoluble. Right. You want the balance of both. And of course, fluids. Hydration is very important because if you're dehydrated, you can still become constipated on a higher fiber diet or getting the fiber because you need the fluids to move. To help everything go through. Right. So So with a condition like proctitis, regular bowel habits, always helpful. And then Sally, you said add the water, soluble, insoluble fiber, generally healthy Mm -hmm. diet. And, And maybe just kind of a anti-inflammatory type diet, like just avoiding things that might be irritating. Again, like caffeine, coffee, and just more soothing things. Omega-3s might help. Omega-3 has been shown to have an anti-inflammatory effect, and so it's very protective for heart disease, but they're doing more research in terms of the um, things like uh, arthritis or uh, dementia or um, even asthma, so looking at the possibilities there, even depression. So. So you really don't want to pop your omega-3s with your coffee. Probably not a good combination. We talked about food combos earlier. That's just a bad way to take your supplements. So maybe eat more fish. but (laughs) Eat more fish. Okay. All right. But not necessarily eat it and drink coffee. Okay. We've got a couple callers on the line. We've got Carol from Hawaii Kai. Carol, welcome to The Body Show. Well, thank you very much. I've got a quick question for you. Uh, Sometimes I will eat a food. Uh, a very simple food, like sometimes a fresh banana, after which I'll start to sneeze maybe six or more times in a row. And I'm wondering, what does that indicate? An allergic reaction? Or what do you think? It's a great question. Yeah. Uh, a sneeze is probably not an allergic reaction. But if somebody eats a certain food, let's say, Carol, you eat bananas, every time you eat a banana, you turn into a sneeze fest. I mean, you just have like a six or seven times you sneeze. It, it, the, should we just not eat bananas then at that point? Or if it's something where you seem to have this reaction, it's not necessarily maybe not allergic, but an intolerance, would you say? Right. So I, I would just recommend, okay, if this happens each and every time and it's just you absolutely just – it's just irritable to you and it's just – I don't want to deal with it, then I would say don't avoid bananas. bananas. But if you love bananas and you can live with the sneezing, probably not anything detrimental to your health. Or like put them in a smoothie. Good. Carol, do smoothie bananas bother okay. you? Um, I, I'm not sure that it does, but it, your answer makes sense, and I, and I think I can deal with that. And Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right. Thank well, thank you. you so much for calling us today. We have got another caller. We have got Gabby from Makawao. Gabby, welcome to The Body Show. Hi there. Hey, I just, I'll just i try to be quick, but I really want to help the person who called who said he had his wife had really bad eczema. Great. I love it when callers help other callers. Well, this is totally anecdotal, and it, uh, my friend was, uh, she was, um, when no one is looking, a chocolate chip cookie-aholic, so she was really, really suffering from sugar binging, but um, she had really, really bad eczema, so was scratching her legs with a brush until they were raw, she went to many doctors, dermatologists, specialists, naturopaths, everything. 
could get no relief. And finally she went to one guy somewhere out in Haiku, I don't know his name, but he just told her, no raw, it's too hard on the body, no sugar, no coffee, no acid, eggs are good, fish is good, mellow, cooked, no spices, chicken broth, brown rice, quinoa, and gently cooked veggies and olive oil. Sounds pretty basic to me. So eat healthy foods. <laughs> Bottom don't line, a chocolate chip don't be a chocolate. Okay. And this is back to foods that really trigger inflammation. So inflammation, eczema is a form of inflammation in the skin. Right, but so. no raw. Like a lot of people are into this whole raw thing, and that's great, but not for this situation. Raw was too hard on the body for this situation. Yeah, and it'll be individualized because someone may be able to handle um, that and some won't. So it, it really does have to be individualized. And I'm so glad you shared that because I think that, you know, anything that can help um, others would be important. But chocolate contains cocoa, and that's very um, inflammatory. Yeah. So well, she, just, um, she was miserable for coffee. months and went yeah. to many doctors. And this well, the only the, thing that helped her. There's a lot of evidence that high glycemic foods um, are pro-inflammatory. So that's going to be your cookies, your sugary foods, and all of that. So. Right. Yeah. It was a pretty spare diet, but it's what saved her. Yeah, and and basically it's just a healthy diet. So so good for her, Gabby. So your friend, eczema well controlled? Yes, completely gone, finally. <laughs> but it took her like seven, eight months, and she was, you know, pretty diligent with the natural paths, the, the doctors, the non-doctors, the, the fad diets, everything. She struggled, yeah. and she finally found super plain food, no spices, boring for about five months, but it cured it and it went away. That's Fantastic. Great. All right, Gabby. Well, thanks for telling her story and good luck to your friend. Yeah, Sounds like she really found something that worked for her. And, yeah. uh, you know, you mentioned all those foods. We talked about some of those earlier and they're all like healthy foods. Uh-huh. Happen to be. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks for sharing. And I do hope that Ray from Copper Lay heard that because he called about his wife with the eczema. It's so much suffering. I hope it works. I hope so, too. All right, Ray, if you're out there, I hope you're listening and have your wife take a listen to the podcast if she can. Gabby from Makawao has some advice for you guys. So thanks for calling us today. Now, Sally, I'm curious, how come turkey always makes me sleepy when I eat it? And and why do people feel tired after lunch? Well, it's the, the amino acid tryptophan. Uh, and is it because maybe they ate too much for lunch? I tend to think it's because we tend to eat a lot at Thanksgiving, and that's probably why we feel sleepy. But there is some evidence that the amino acid tryptophan can kind of, you know, relax us and make us kind of feel like we're lulling into sleep. Um, But, you know, tuna, tuna has high levels too. So interesting. Maybe it's that tuna sandwich or eating too much Thanksgiving dinner. Or if you eat like a huge carbohydrate thing for lunch, then that could make you feel a little tired. Sure. Now, what about brain foods? Everybody always wants to be smarter. Are there any foods that will make me smarter? I I think we have to really uh, use our brains to to be smarter. But um, there's no like easy. Just eat this, and I'm a genius. <laughs> well, they're they're like I said, they're doing a lot more research with uh, omega threes. So so if I want to get smarter eat foods that do not cause inflammation. You mentioned right. anti-inflammatory foods. Exactly. Omega-3 might be one exactly. of those. And and don't take it with coffee because that might just cancel one another out. But do you think supplements in general, should you go for the, for the food version of what you're looking for? Should you say I'm going to eat fish or should you say I'm going to take some omega-3 supplements? In general, which one is better? The best way to get omega-3 would be from the actual food. Fr- from food. Yeah, right. Because there's a lot of uh, other components 
in the food or things that work with it together to help us absorb and utilize and assimilate the nutrients or things like omega-3. So that's the best way to get it. But of course, supplements can be very helpful and beneficial for a lot of people. So you, if, if you can get it from the food, go for that. If you can't, supplements are better than not getting it at all. In, in a lot of cases, if someone has high triglycerides or they just don't eat fish at all it, or they have a you know, history of high triglycerides or heart disease, maybe it wouldn't hurt them to talk to their doctor about just adding some omega-3 or fish oil to their... So adding a supplement. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. But if you do like fish and if you get enough... Now, how do you know if you're getting enough? I mean, everybody always says, you know, do I get enough nutrients from my food? Are there any signs when somebody comes to see you to say, hey, I want to make sure that I'm following a healthy diet? Are there any tests that you do to see if that's the case? You know, they're they're doing a lot more in terms of those tests. And right now, we do have to send those tests out. And I don't know that um, there's any um, one in Hawaii that really does that. So um, they're looking at some of that. But in terms of uh, physical assessment, when a patient walks into my office, I'm going to look at their eyes, their skin, their nails, their hair, um, just kind of their overall demeanor. Do they look kind of tired out? Um, Skin color, um, look for their eyes, look at the color of their eyes and just watch for signs. So if somebody notices that something's changing for them, they feel like maybe their eyes are getting a little bit dull, or maybe even, you know, we talk about yellow color Mm -hmm. in the white parts of your eyes, or if they're just feeling really fatigued, one of the things, could should they start off by keeping a food journal? Does that help you? If somebody comes to see you and says, hey, here's what I ate for the last three weeks, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Does that help you to have that information already in advance? Uh, absolutely. And I, I, we use them. That's a very important tool for uh, registered dietitians, nutritionists in our work is because that's the only way we can really help the patient or the client is knowing that. And a lot of what we do is elimination. So it's kind of like if you know, what's the problem and eliminating those foods slowly. And a lot of times it takes time when someone is making changes in their diet to kind of get some of that out of their system. And as they're eliminating these foods, they find that they feel a lot better. Case in point, you know, um, Gabby's friend who said it took seven months. Yeah, you know, the bottom line was probably not eating very healthy and just eating junk. And so eliminating some of those foods and just feeling better and just kind of getting a lot of that out of out of the system and introducing fresh whole foods into the diet. And then, of course, you know, how the food is prepared so that it's tolerable. So if somebody really wanted to see a nutritionist, if they, if they said, you know, I really need some help with my diet, how do they go about doing that? What should they do? Well, we recommend that they speak with their doctor and, and ask for a referral to see the nutritionist. Now, you work through Straub Clinic. Yes. And if somebody wanted to see you and be sent to see you for a dietary consult, is there a phone number where they can reach you? Is there a place where they can find out more? Yes. So um, the dietitians work out of the Straub Health Management Department, and our number is 522 um, I'm sorry. Four three two five. So that's five two two four three two five. Fantastic. All right. Well, Sally, thank you so much. Time number four for sharing your expertise with us today on the Body Show. We're gonna have to have you back. We had a lot of callers today. An hour went by already. 
I can't believe it. All right. Sally Bellas is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, and an expert at Straub Clinic. She can be reached at 522-4325 in the Health Education Department. If you'd like to hear the show again, click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to the podcast. Our engineer is David Chong, our executive producer, Beth Ann Kozlovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week on Monday at 5 on The Body Show. Thank you.